Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm uh, here with people named Ashley and Scott. We're going to do something a little bit different today. So we're going to be interviewing another person at this table that has three first names, Scott Allen Brady. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about this. I mean, I think a lot of people in, in the Overland world kind of share the same story. I think I was, I think I was 15 when I joined Expedition Portal. <laughs> it's close. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like almost 19 now, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's been, it's just been so cool to see, you know, your adventures throughout the years. Thank you. Um, they've been incredibly inspirational to me. I'm sure they have, you know, to a lot of people. And uh, it's been just really cool to see how you've constantly pushed the industry. Um, and as the industry's grown and kind of created its own little identity, you know, I mean, because it's not the global travel that it kind of started off as it never was going to be, it, it, but how you've stayed true to your roots. And I think that that's really cool and something that I've always really appreciated, but um, that's the, those are the last nice things I'm going to say. I'm going to start <laughs> heckling you now. Um, Bring it on. I yeah. Love it. I love so, it. I love but it. here's, here's the awesome part about all of this <laughs> is Ashley here. <laughs> See, see, as we said, I'm the kid that wings it in class. She has prepared notes. I was like, I'm the nerdy one that brings my notes and I'm all organized. And he's like the cool kid that doesn't prepare, but still does the, this well. This is the only little world in which I might be a cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. Yes, I oh, I'm excited, guys. Thank you. And a special thanks to Dometic for supporting this week's podcast. It starts with getting out there, but that's only the beginning. You want to make the most of your time out there. You want to stay longer, see more, and experience more. You want to savor the moment and make meaningful memories in the process. Whether you're seeking the peace of solitude or connecting with the people who mean the most to you, our goal at Dometic is to help make those moments and memories possible with products designed to make outdoor living easy. We've been helping people get out there and stay out there longer for decades. Today, Dometic is committed to making the outdoors even more accessible and helping you embrace every moment of your adventure, making memories for a lifetime. So two hosts, one Brady. One hostess. I was just going to say, I was um, hanging out with Paul May recently and asking him a little bit about his history. Mm. And he he mentioned you coming up to him one day with these pieces of a magazine that you wanted to start. Yes. Pieces of paper compiled together in your hands. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about Scott Brady. So I was really inspired to... Learn more by wolves, (laughs) (laughs) bald wolves, bald wolves. Yeah, that's why Scott wears a hat. Can't see my ears, but I think there's a lot of people, you know, in this industry that kind of got their start through Scott. I mean, I was 20, I think, when you first offered me a job. Yep. Um, took a huge chance. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for you, which has been like really. You are, you are super talented. I'm. I I appreciate that, but. Um, why don't you, why don't you fire off? Should I go? I'll start my list. Start your list. Okay. Let's start with what was your first four wheel drive vehicle? Oh damn. That's what I was going to (laughs) ask. See you. I prepared, but you were going to wing it. And so I have, I have a funny story on that. I grew up in Southern California and I knew nothing about off-road or four wheel drive, but I had actually seen a a magazine cover with the camel trophy on it. I thought, and I was a multi-sport athlete at the time. I'm no longer a multi-sport athlete, but what sports? (laughs) So it was, was uh, triathlons. So I did triathlons for many years and I see this event called the camel trophy. And I'm, I was just so inspired by it. And I, and I realized I wanted to get into four wheel driving and a buddy of mine had a Jeep. And so I went to this dealership and they had this black lifted Zuzu Amigo mm. on the lot. Mm. And I, and I'm thinking this, this is perfect for me. There was two problems. 
It was a manual transmission, which I didn't know how to drive. And it, it wasn't actually four-wheel drive, but the salesman being a used car salesman that he was convinced me that four-wheel drive was actually not necessary at all. No, 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 it is a, it is a, yeah. it is I mean, a rumor. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's like, it affects your fuel economy. He's like, look at the tires on this thing. And I, of course me being, I think I was 19. Yeah. So uh, it took me about an hour to get it the three or four miles home because I didn't know how to drive. It. <laughs> I kept stalling in the middle of every intersection on like Ventura Boulevard. So yeah. yeah. So my first four-wheel drive was not a four-wheel drive. It was a two-wheel drive. And that's where I learned the power of momentum, um, which that was, that was a tough one. But I would say my first, my first true four-wheel drive was an Isuzu Rodeo. So I traded in the Amigo for- You've had a thing with Isuzu. I have. I've had- I've had, had all of these. Too. I did. Yeah. yeah they were they great like cars. On names like Ego. Yeah. Trooper. Great cars. They were all super great cars. Yeah. I wonder if they're still around. So that was my, my first four wheel drive would have been an Azusa Rodeo. And then you had a, like Neat. a CJ. I did. Seven when you were in the Air Force. I did. I had actually an M38A1 first. So a very old Jeep. Oh yeah. Like the, the Korean era. Yes, exactly. So I traded in the Rodeo for a Jeep because I figured I, you had to have a Jeep in order to really go off road, which of course that or Jeep was nowhere well, in 1957 <laughs> that would have been true that's true yeah that's true yeah so the rodeo of course have, i could have done that insult better <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, well i am i'm getting there i'm getting i mean i'm holding on to my last vestiges of the 40s so yeah so that's no that's very true yeah so i had that m38a1 which i proceeded to ruin by putting too big a tire on and too big of a motor and yeah yeah so i did that all wrong it's like my tj yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was my TJ moment. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so born in Southern California, um, somewhere after the civil war <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, um, you were in the air force. I was Yeah, right um, out of high school, just about, uh, just after World War II. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I was fortunate to miss the last of the great wars. Yeah. 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 No, but you were stationed in Italy. I was. And that was a big, that was a big part of my love for travel because yeah. I had never traveled out of the country. I'd been to Mexico once. I think I helped build a school or something down there in high school. And then I joined the Air Force. And the next thing you know, I'm getting sent off to Southern Italy yeah. during the whole Bosnian conflict in that part of the world. And, and by the time I had gotten from the airport to the base, I realized I have no idea what the world is all about. I was so insulated, and not, not in a bad then? way. 20 years old. 20. Yeah. I celebrated my 21st birthday in Italy. And, and that's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. Especially since I didn't really understand the limits of alcohol consumption <laughs> at 21 either. Yeah. So yeah. No one does. Fortunately, I didn't end up in an Italian hospital that day, but yeah. So it was, it was this experience of going someplace so different but was also so inspiring to me yeah. and intriguing. And I felt so curious and open to the idea of learning more about this culture and being a firefighter in the air force, I worked every other day. So I would, I would just walk into town or I would ride a bicycle into town. Or if I had a few days off, I would rent a small little car and I'd go drive someplace in Italy. By the time I left Italy, I knew that I wanted, I wanted travel to be a part of my life. I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't yeah. know what, what I was going to need to do in order to get there. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of go through that same, that same thing as they get the, they get the first, first taste. I, I, I think that's always been a misconception. People have always asked me and I'm sure it's the same thing is they assume that because you traveled, grew up traveling. Mm. Mm, not yeah. True. And I didn't, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't either. Yeah. I mean, I like went to Mexico, yeah. like Cancun when I was like seven. Yeah. Really familiar with like going to Indiana. My dad, <laughs> my dad, my dad always had cool hobbies like he was hunting or we would go 
backpacking. And so I was exposed to the outdoors a lot, which I think helped, uh, but no, never travel. Post Air Force. Tell me about Scotty Post Air Force. Well, that was uh, an interesting, it was kind of a frightening transition. I knew I didn't want to stay in the military and I'd completed my four years. I didn't want to go back to Southern California either because I couldn't afford it. I didn't have any money. And so my aunt and uncle had a cattle ranch in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So they had this huge cattle ranch. They, there wasn't a lot of the land that they owned themselves. They were they mostly leases, leases on the land. So it was 50 something thousand acres. Wow. And my uncle um, had always been such a positive part of my life growing up. He was the one who taught me how to drive and I mean, really positive part of my life. And so I decided I'm going to move down and live on the ranch. So I moved down to Arizona. I'm living on the cattle ranch and, and I had some some chores that I had to do every day. So I'd wake up in the morning and I'd saddle the horse and I'd ride fence line. And it's cool. And we had two Nissan patrols of all things on the ranch, (laughs) like super old Nissan patrols. And so I'd ride fence line and go check on the cows. And, and it was actually a wonderful experience. Like I, I didn't know what to expect much like the military. I knew I didn't want to do it forever, but that year and a half that I lived on the ranch was very, very special. So I was able to spend a lot of time with my aunt and uncle that I love. And it also, I think gave me a very soft landing from the military. Um, and during that period of time, I also had a part-time job where I worked uh, security at the Gila Bend Auxiliary Field, yeah. at where the Barium Goldwater ranges along the Mexican border. El Camino del Diablo goes right through there. So I worked out there for a period of time doing security stuff out yeah. there. Is this a love of vehicles that came gradually or can you like look back on early years? and point to something. I think that that's, that's an important transition that happened for me. In the very beginning, it was all about the vehicles. And I felt, I felt so attracted to the idea of building these trucks up and building these Jeeps up. And I worked on them a lot myself. That early M38A1, I rebuilt it from front to back myself. And even though I had no idea what I was doing, but I took the time and I had people who helped and showed me how to do that. Uh, Mike Hancock, my, one of my earliest friends, showed me how to rebuild things on the Jeep. It was very much about the vehicle in the beginning. But I realized by the time I had done that Italy trip that what I was most inspired by was the experience of traveling. That began the transition from me recognizing that I like the vehicles a lot, but I actually, at this point in my life, I don't care if I'm walking I mean, I, it's, you can't get very, anywhere very fast walking. So I do still drive vehicles or ride motorcycles, but those two things are really just kind of a magic carpet to those adventures that I want to get to. So that's where that transition happened. But in the beginning, I was very much into vehicles, even all the way through my time in manufacturing, where I was able to afford to go and take courses in driving and do more high performance driving. I focused a lot on speed and driving fast and cars, but I realized that my heart was always being pulled towards the travel side. We call that period corporate Scotty. (laughs) (laughs) Which it was also, it's an important part of my learning that allowed me to eventually have my own business. So exhibition portal was 2005. And before that, when I was actually, when I was still working in manufacturing, we made uh, components for airbags and I was lucky that I had an incredible boss, Bob Dewey, that really showed me some insights into leadership. He was, he was such a great teacher about business and he was always so free with, with thought and information around that. That's when I first started my first blog. So I I was just tech savvy enough that I can't even remember where I hosted it, but I started to write a little bit about my trips. The facility closed down 
because 60% of our business was moved to China by the, by the customer. And this company, Lexington Precision, that I worked for, they invited me to go back east and to see their sister division in Rochester, New York. And fortunately for me, they flew me back there in February into Buffalo, New York. Oh, lovely. So imagine living in Arizona, growing up in Southern California and coming to negative 8,000. <laughs> but by, by the time I had gotten to the rental car booth, I knew that there was no way I could make that move. And I didn't. I turned down the job and because they needed to have the building closed down and some transition, I was able to keep some employment, but I didn't have to move to Rochester, New York. Uh, and that was when I first started figuring out like, how do I make a living otherwise? And then you started off kind of guiding some trips. I did. That was under a lot with Earth Expeditions Roamer. West. Expeditions West was our first LLC. I yeah. was an Expeditions West. Employee. Yeah, you were. That's true. Before we combined the businesses. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So 2000, 2002, I bought a Land Rover Discovery 2, uh, which was about as big of a mistake as the Amigo. You want to go travel around the world and let's buy the least. Rel- I mean, and plus I, I had no idea what I was doing as a traveler. So yeah. let's buy the most unreliable Land Rover ever, ever made. And so I did a trip down to Mexico and barely made it back across the border with like the air conditioning compressor almost coming off of the motor. So yeah, that was, that was not the best choice. So then I ended up getting that 2004 Tacoma, which is when things started to really change. Yeah. I remember mm. that truck. It had, the, was it the first truck that had a topographic wrap? I mean, it was Genesis. <laughs> yeah. It was Genesis for <laughs> Overland. It, it was. Like, yeah. It did. I had a topo map It was map 2004. On it. Yeah. And it had a topo map. And I remember, like, I remember seeing this before Expedition Portal and I saw it at SEMA or something. I'm like, wow, it is a map. (laughs) (laughs) It did. It did. It's a map. It's got little lines and top of it. Cool. Yeah, totally. And now it's like a horse that's been beat to death a thousand times. Yeah. It was a great idea. It was the only roof tent at SEMA that year. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, now you struggle to not see a roof tent on like a Super Duty with 38 inch on a Subaru or a Subaru. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, They're everywhere. So, so Expeditions West leads to Expedition Portal starting. Yeah. And Expedition Portal was inspired in, in large part by a forum community called four wheel drive trips. So there was a group of folks there that I did a lot of traveling with, but the, the website didn't focus on international travel at all. It didn't, it didn't have an international component and it had a very limited uh, vehicle based component to it. So it was all about planning these trips. So it was about four-wheel drive trips. And all of my first longer distance backcountry travel was through that forum. Um, I don't know if it's still in existence. Hopefully it is. But the people who were on that forum were very fundamental to me learning a lot about this. Having that technology background, I felt comfortable starting my own forum. That would include a lot more about vehicles and a lot more about international travel. So um, it started out as a forum or did it, you, was, it was a forum? Okay. There was no editorial on it in the beginning. It was right. only it was only a community forum. Forum. And then I think by the time we hit five or 6,000 members, I realized it's probably a good idea to start putting some editorial on there. So at the time I had the website expeditionswest.com, which was all of my editorial. And I was writing for Off-Road Magazine. I was writing for Four Wheeler. I was writing for other outlets and I was learning a lot from those folks. I remember when I first got published um, in Four Wheel Drive and Sport Utility, which was a magazine that Phil Howell ran forever. And this guy was, he was like a legend to me. I like, I loved his magazine. I loved of the way that he emphasized trails and getting out and exploring. And, and, uh, he was also air force. He just took a chance on me and 
let me start writing for his magazine. He was one of the first ones that really helped make that possible. What was some good advice that he gave you about writing? Yeah, I think one of the things that he helped me most was being really organized around the package that I contributed. It, I found that in those early days that the the editors would get most frustrated when things were incomplete, like when it didn't have captions and it didn't have the right images at the right size and, and the copy wasn't delivered at the right word count that they that they uh, asked for. He didn't have a lot of feedback on my writing because I had done a lot of writing in my life, mostly through business. But mm. I think the, the writing was okay. Not great, but it was just, it was passable. He was really focused on the packages. So those that are listening, if you want to write for a magazine, deliver a really clean, make it easy concise, on the editor. yeah, make it easy on the editor. Matt, Matt's run magazines in Australia. And I'm sure that you thought like, you know, this person just delivered me a really tidy package. Thank you yes. <laughs> for making my life mm. better. You can have the job next time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 2006 was the start of the, or 2005 was the start of the forum. And then in 2006, I competed in the Outback Challenge, Yeah, which was the next big step. And you, you were the first American to To win that. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and tell us, give us the elevator pitch on the Outback Challenge. Well, it started in Australia and it was uh, kind of like the Rebel, um, or kind of like the Dakar in a way, but with more modified vehicles. So it was high speed plus recovery plus very technical terrain. And they held it for many years also in Morocco. And that was where I competed. Patrice Ryder was my sponsor out of France. And he literally threw me the keys to a Land Cruiser. They wanted us to go over there and kind of represent the United States. They wanted to have an American competitor. And I, I don't think that they thought we were going to even get our... Take this, Frenchie. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So we ended up... Nathan Hinman was my navigator. We talked about navigators in the podcast on the Rebel Rally. And uh, Nathan was an absolutely stellar navigator. Yeah. And he never squealed when we were going sideways at 100 miles an hour down the road. So, <laughs> you know, it was really helpful to have his expertise. And we never broke the truck and we never really got lost. Um, and because of that, we were able to do well in the race. And then shortly after that, Overland Journal. Yes. So by the time Expedition Portal got to maybe 20 or 30,000 members, I realized like oh, there's, there might be a business here. And I was still working in technology, higher, higher education technology at the time to pay bills. But I realized like th- there might be a real option here for me to make this my life to finally close that loop on being able to travel. And that was when we started the magazine. So this was late 2006. And I was having a conversation with Jonathan Hansen. And he's one of the most talented writers I've ever seen. And he's also has a lot of specific knowledge around vehicles and overlanding. And he also has like impeccable taste. Yeah. So, yeah. So combining those attributes with my desire to start a publication as well. And um, yeah, we were kind of finishing each other's sentences on what we wanted the magazine to be. And we just went for it. I mean, it, like I had no idea how to make a magazine and Jonathan had never been a publisher yeah. either. So we had the right ingredients. And I think maybe it actually helped us that we had no idea what we were doing because we didn't have the fear know. of knowing yeah. that he didn't mm. know. We didn't know what you weren't supposed to do. So we just did exactly what we would want a magazine was to it, be. Was it the first? So it was spring 2007. Seven. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. What was the first issue like? It was the camp chair one, right? Was it, was it the like $600? Cause I remember for a no, while. That, that was, that was in the journal was the $600 camp chair magazine. It was, it was. <laughs> camp chairs are sitting right there. <laughs> actually, yeah, actually it's before? the same, it's the same company. And that's actually a funny thing. Cause it was the six, the $600 camp chairs are the only ones that have lasted. Yeah. For the last 15 years, like I still use them on a regular okay. basis. I don't know if it would be a regret, but it was a realization for us that there, that there is premium quality and then there's just expensive and just expensive doesn't have a place in Overland Journal. And that was an important lesson from, for us that we learned from our readers by calling us out of saying like, Hey, that's kind of ridiculous. And they were right. It was, it was ridiculous. And there's nothing wrong with featuring something of premium quality um, that happens to be expensive because that's what it takes to make it as opposed to something that's just expensive for being expensive sake. So hmm. yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're actually still great chairs, but no one needs Buffalo hide to accent their canvas sling chair. So <laughs> do you remember what else Save was in the yourself. first? Oh my God. <laughs> I love Cape Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. What was in the first issue? Do you remember like what kind of articles and photography? I do. Uh, Graham Jackson had the cover photo and it was Graham Jackson's trip across Africa. And that was an incredible piece. It was a perfect fit for us in the beginning. And then we also had an article in there from Chris Scott, a motorcycle article as well. I don't remember much of the other pieces that are in there. That's actually quite some time ago now that I think about it, but 15 years ago. So, wow. and that was before iPhone. Yeah, it was, it was very, very early in that smartphone days. Yeah. What did it feel like holding that magazine in your hands? Like the first one printed even a little bit better for me was the magazine is printed in Salt Lake by a place called Hudson printing and Stephanie Brady, who at my time at the time was my wife. Now my ex-wife, she's still an important part of the business. And we went together to go up to Hudson printing to go see the magazine come off of the printer. And so to watch the pages fly off of this printer at this incredible rate and to hold the proofs in our hands and to sit down at their conference room table and proof the magazine and start that relationship with that printer that has continued to today. So Overland Journal is still printed in the United States um, and it's still an employee owned business and it's still all of those things that we started it as. So that was a pretty special experience to see it like the ink barely dry. Yeah, it was very cool. You've been on a lot of trips and had a lot of experiences. Which one was the most life-changing or impactful? Chuck E. Cheese, 1992. (laughs) (laughs) Little Billy's birthday party. (laughs) I would say that some of my trips have been very good for me professionally, but they're not always the same ones that change me personally. I was on a trip in, I would say 2016 was a very big year for me as far as personal transitions, but I had done a trip to Uganda and Kenya, we had some interactions with the Ugandans there that was extremely humbling for me and made me very aware of how fortunate I am in my life in ways that I had never really noticed at that depth before. Um, So I think that was when I started to transition from being a tourist to being more of a traveler. Um, So despite the fact that I had done some very big vehicle-based trips Prior to that, I felt like I was a stone skipping across the surface of the water and I had never really gotten very deep. So I had managed to cross continents, but never really get an understanding of the place, a deep understanding, personal understanding of the place. So 
that trip to Africa was big for that. And I went on that trip with Brian Bass, who's a great friend of mine. He's been on the podcast a few times. And um, that was really important to travel with someone like him that sees the world in a very different way. And as an archaeologist and as an anthropologist, he sees it in ways that I would have never been able to see before. And then later that year, I did a motorcycle trip to South America and it was part of a group called Expedition 65. So I went down to Peru with the group and then I left the group in the Andes just by myself on a motorcycle and I worked my way back up to Colombia. So it was the first time I had ever traveled for that long alone with my own thoughts and very few distractions on a motorcycle because you're fairly, fairly focused on not dying. You don't have a lot. You're not playing with your phone. You just maybe have some music in the helmet. I came to terms with some things that needed to change in my life. And that was like an extremely emotional point for me because I was all alone coming to terms with all of these things that needed to change in my life, like on the side of the road of the Pan American trying to come to terms with the things that I needed to do different. And uh, I think that being on a motorcycle alone is something that it's actually a little bit scary for me to do now because it, it is very, it opens us up to think about our life. Maybe it's meditative in a way. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to to make it sound too esoteric, but I think just being quiet by ourselves at times is a really good idea. And so I had thousands of miles of being quiet and that really resulted in some personal change. So, and then going back a little bit, I mean, exhibition seven was a, was a huge thing, a a huge accomplishment. But when, when I heard you say that, you know, the, the rock kind of skipping the surface, Yeah, did you, did you really enjoy that trip? I, there were elements that I enjoyed about it a lot. Um, the personal connections that I made, I mean, all that time with Bruce Dorn and Sinway and you, you came along on parts of the trip and, and, uh, spending time with Greg and his family and just Kurt Williams, now a lifetime friend and, uh, Clay Croft. I mean, we, you know, we shared the the pink room in the brothel in in Russia, (laughs) you know, it's just like, you just end up with, you just end up with these lifelong friendships and connections. And then if I look at it this way and, and, And it was actually Barry Andrews that I credit with this shift in my perspective on Expedition 7 was I was telling him like, I'm so focused on all, there's all these moving pieces. There's all this that has to happen. I don't feel like I'm really enjoying the travel. And Barry said, that's not what you need to be doing right now. He said, you're going to get a PhD in overlanding by the time you've gone to all seven continents with these vehicles. Yeah. And, and I don't mean to assume that I'm, I've gotten a PhD. I haven't. I mean, I only know 5% of what, what I would love to know. But his, his mindset was right, is shift the perspective from the fact that you can't be a traveler right now. You're an expedition leader. You have all these people that are counting on you to arrive safely and to accomplish a goal together. So it allowed me to get my focus back on learn everything that I can about going around the world, about carnets, about shipping, about shipping by air and shipping by boat and shipping by rail. And, <laughs> and, I, and I got to learn all of those things um, in great detail because of Expedition 7. So is it the way that I would recommend people see the world? It may be a good way for some people to see it that way, but I would not generally recommend that. I think that you're better off slowing down. It, it seemed to be a mm-hmm. huge transition for you. Is that post E7 or pre E7, it was Expedition Leader Scott? Yeah. Post E7, it became Traveler Scott. Totally. The desire, it was almost like you kind of ticked the, the box. On yeah, the, probably. You know, on the dream vehicle, perfect yeah. scenario, this, 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 this. And then you just kind of, because you pretty much like stopped caring about trucks after that. And, and, and you know, from, <laughs> that's from very like true. a friend perspective. No, that's very true. Like, yeah, so what about Greenland then? Because that that's the most recent expedition. Like big, big one, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and Greenland, I enjoyed very much because I was in a different role. I wasn't the expedition leader. I had some leadership elements to my role, but it was, I was there as a photographer and I was there as a driver. And also all of us had evolved a lot. We had all grown as travelers and we all wanted things to be a little different. It was also something that had not only it was it was less of a of like a first in the sense that like expedition 7 was to take the same vehicle to all seven continents whereas greenland like it had never been crossed that way in a vehicle by any means and it, and there's reasons for that because it's super difficult to do that and so that that expedition for me felt the most remote the most risk we had many moments where we recognized that we were at great risk and um, that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed that being so far out on the hairy edge that it makes a bunch of things come into focus. And also there were people on the team that were reaching their limits of what they felt was safe. And we were working through that together. And, and there was a lot of trust that we all had to give to each other to continue forward to the goal. The uh, Greenland trip for me was one of the, one of the trips that I've enjoyed the most. Um, it was just incredible to have done that with that group of people. And there was never a crossword spoken despite how intense it was. So yeah, Greenland was different for sure. And I think I had learned a little bit. I had grown a little bit before then too. That was the first that I remember which crossing. It was so, the first long axis crossing long axis. Okay. of Greenland. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that was really, that was amazing. That was really and, amazing. And, and beautiful. Then you guys did like a double crossing of Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica too, didn't you? We did. Yeah. So we, we crossed from the East coast of Antarctica at the Russian Novosibirsk base all the way to the, to the Leverick Glacier, the Ross Ice Shelf, which is the other side of the continent. And then we had to turn around and get back to the other side. So yeah, we ended up doing a double crossing of Antarctica. I, I remember being in your office, that would have been 2012 or 2013. And it's like, I just put an Anatov on my credit card. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we literally, we needed to hire an Antonov, you know, I mean, it was actually an, an Aleutian, an IL-77. So it was what we, we ended up using, but yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And a special thanks to Red Arc for supporting this week's podcast. Red Arc's Topro Elite Brake Controller has been torture tested in the Australian Outback. The dash-mounted head unit allows you to switch between proportional for the highway and user-controlled for the trails. You may not trust the terrain that you're on, but you can always trust Red Arc's Topro Elite. Tow with confidence by visiting redarcelectronics.com. That's cool to have those experiences that is a team on an expedition, but then also contrast with your own personal travel, mm. how you like to travel, plus, you know, all the other guiding and press trips. And that's a lot of experience. It results in a lot of time behind the wheel. I think I finally have let myself uh, be just still enough to start to soak in some of the lessons of travel. And that feels good to me. So like just this sailing trip that I did being in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and yeah, I mean, that's something drastically different yeah, for you. Because of COVID, I mean, I had planned on going to Africa. Yeah, you're going to do the motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. And and all of that was shut down. And Brian McVickers, Rusty Bonds, who owns the boat, they invited me to come along and just, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing as far as sailing went, but um, I learned a lot by the other end of it. 
Yeah. And then you bought a sailboat. I did buy a sailboat after that. Yeah. So <laughs> you bought a vessel in which you can burn money inside of yeah. on the water. And yeah, then burn exactly. The exactly. The water. I'm learning that very quickly here. Yeah. But no, the sailing is something else because it is, I mean, it's like overlanding, but more difficult. Yeah. And you're f- more remote. I mean, we were a thousand miles from land at one point in any direction. Um, so you just don't get more remote than that than in being in the middle of the Pacific. Do you see your, I mean, so, so take the Greenland thing and then take the, the Pacific crossing that you did on the sailboat, do you see yourself being more driven by more challenging trips in the future? Mm. Or do you see yourself wanting to travel more and interact more or like your Africa trip in Honda? I think that for me, it comes down to- Or you can do both. Well, in a way it is both. I find myself wanting to do some bigger motorcycle trips while I'm still healthy. I don't have any injuries or anything like that. And I want, there's some things that I want to do on the motorcycle and just really soak up that experience I'm finding myself less interested in doing something big just because it's big. I want to do something that feels like it would be a learning opportunity for me um, or the people that I'm traveling with. So that I find myself interested in. I'm also interested in going to places that really haven't been explored that much, just so that we can give a fresh perspective from Overland Journal and from our own content of a, a different kind of place than has been traveled to a lot. So I do find myself pretty, pretty interested in that kind of thing. Overland, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's on the top of your list? Um, I do want to drive from or ride a motorcycle from probably Cape Town or Johannesburg up to Egypt. I'd like to see that part of Africa. I've seen chunks of it, but I've never kind of strung those along. I've never been to Tanzania and Matt speaks so highly of that. I'd love to go there. I really liked my time in Kenya and Uganda and and South Sudan. So I'd like to continue up that direction a little more. Um, I'd love to see Egypt and the deserts of Egypt. So I'm really excited about that. Sudan's on my list. Like that Northern Sudan area, kind of South of the Aswan Reservoir and Dam. Yeah. That looks really cool. And as I understand that the people there are wonderful and I'm just I'm so looking forward they to interacting. Just have another cool. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. And then Ethiopia is also that yeah. whole civil yeah. war in the Tigray region. So that's that's the way around the Ethiopia problem right now is to go through Sudan. So it, it might be a timing issue. I, I might need to leave and come back or something like that, but I'll just start the journey. So that's that's a big one for me. There's a good chance that I'll be able to continue on the sailboat through the Northwest Passage or at least part of it. And that sounds that sounds really interesting to that me. Would be cool. I would have to say that Right now, I'm just really enjoying watching the team produce incredible things. I mean, the team here at Overland International is just, they're exceptional in ways that I'll never be exceptional. And to watch them create the content that they're creating at the level of quality that they're creating it. And with that level of professionalism and insight is just so fun to watch. So that I'm also enjoying. That's you, Ashley. (laughs) I was like, ooh, who are these people? So great. Yeah. So to me, that's another adventure that I'm enjoying is just watching the team rocket. Yeah. What draws you to leadership? I don't know if I'm good at it or not. I do know that for me, it feels natural to be in a leadership role on something like an expedition. Like that feels very natural to me. And I think that that works, works okay with my skill sets. I think that when it comes to leadership within business, I have so much that I would like to do better and be better at. Uh, but maybe that's what I enjoy about it is that I have so much that I can learn about being a better leader and to be a better support to the team in the ways that I can. I have a lot to learn on that front and I enjoy learning that. So hopefully I'll keep learning. Why overlanding? I feel like you kind of answered that already, but yeah. Yeah, we've gone through that. 
across it all. Well, I think it is. I think I think that's still an interesting point to explore because when I look at overlanding, to me, it it still should be about vehicle-based adventure travel. And maybe that's something that I'm more mindful of now than I have been in years past is that there's nothing wrong with overlanding becoming big and it becoming an, a big industry and a lot of providing for a lot of families and it's providing a lot of adventure for people. But I do think that it's important to continue to acknowledge the core values of what that's all about. And even today, Ashley and I were in an editorial meeting and we were talking about how do we share information about responsible use and about um, we're seeing some of the OEMs featuring content that is not just crossing a river, they're driving up the river. And that is not what we want to encourage as an, as an organization or as an industry. So I think as the industry continues to grow, um, that's an area where I think it is important to remember what overlanding is about, which is vehicle-based adventure travel. And Overland Journal, when we started it, Jonathan came up with this fantastic tagline that said, the environmentally responsible vehicle-based adventure travel magazine. And it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean anything, again, esoteric. It just means simply being responsible for these places that we're visiting, taking some ownership in the fact that I'm going to go camping and let's let's go in a smaller group. So that way we don't expand campsites. Let's take some personal responsibility on, okay, yes, there's some trash in the campsite we just came to. Let's take some ownership over that and clean it up. Let's take an extra five minutes. Maybe don't go on Instagram that morning and take a few minutes to put that trash in a trash bag and, and haul it away so that there's some prayer that 20 years from now, people will still be able to do this. Um, and so I think that when you talk about what why overlanding? I think for me, it was this beautiful confluence for Scott Brady, for me, this beautiful confluence of adventure and vehicles and exploring and the unknown and risk it was the combination of all of those things that really fed me. So it's, it, you know, I think when approached in the right way, overlanding can kind of be that last, the last element of like the modern day explorer. Yeah. You know, it's like you can be explorer or you can play explorer, you know, yeah. on, on overland. You, you, you can have both sides. Sure. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I still play Explorer. I still, I still go car camping. I still go four wheeling. I still, yeah, yeah. I still do things that would not traditionally be considered overlanding. And I just call them what they are. Like I'm going to go camping this weekend, Yeah, <laughs> whatever. I'm going to go car camping. So it must be so interesting to see the change though. I know since we started in 2013, you know, we had a rooftop 10 and everybody would come to the campground mm-hmm. by and be like, what is that thing? Can I see it? Like what's going on? And now it's hard not to see a rooftop 10. So I'm curious what you've seen and how everything's changed now and where you think it's going. Yeah, there's been, a, there's been a lot of change. One of the things that's been positive recently is people are using more payload appropriate vehicles. So we're seeing a lot more full-size trucks, which is good. So um, the traditional choices for overlanding when we were using ground tents was was fine. But once you load them up with 10,000 pounds of stuff, they're no longer safe or appropriate. So we're starting to see a lot more full-size vehicles. So that's been a change. I think that's been positive as well. I also think that we're going to start to see some counterculture around the more stuff is better and people are going to start to realize that they don't need 80% of the things that they have on their vehicle and that what did they give up in order to have it look that way for Instagram? Like what, what did they give up in their personal life? Um, how much debt did they go into to have that stuff on their vehicle? What trips did they not go on because they had spent so much money on the things that are bolted to their car? So I suspect that there will start to be this clarification of the fact that you don't need any of it to go around the world and that people have gone around the world with none of it. 
And it's very feasible to, if travel is important to you, then make that be where you put your emphasis. If the vehicle stuff and all the gadgets is important to you, then go for it. Like there's no, there's nothing wrong. There's not a right or a wrong. It's just, if travel is the most important, just remember that you don't need any of it to go see the world, to go around the world. There's been a few times in my travels where a highly modifi- modified vehicle was necessary. Only a few times. I, I think the van life thing is kind of becoming interesting. Yeah. You know, they're, they're more about, I guess, the comfort on what's inside. Yeah. You know, they're not all crazy done up. That's true. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of us that are just aspiring to be homeless and living someplace Man, really, I really beautiful. So much. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Yeah. I well, mean, we, you we, know what I mean? Yeah. You want to be not in a home in a city. You want to be in your home on wheels out someplace beautiful. Yeah. 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 And technology and society is just allowing more and more people. To totally that. facilitates I, that. Yeah. You know, and we've had the conversation about like Starlink and Tesla. And I think Verizon just partnered with Amazon satellite. Pretty soon you're going to be able to be anywhere. Yeah. And you're going to have, you know, you can have that. But along with being able to be everywhere comes the equalizer of great internet all around the world. Yeah. And that'll be, that's a different conversation. Yeah. It's happening right in front of our eyes. Yeah. Don't underestimate technology. So, well, what's one, what's one thing, what's the last thing people should, should know about Scott Brady? (laughs) For me, there is this, there's a survivorship bias that I have because I've gone, I've done this for 20 years. So it's this idea that the steps that I took along the way resulted in this outcome, but it's literally just dumb luck. I mean, it's, it's, it's the fact that I stayed tenacious about it and it's, there's, there's a survivorship bias at the other end of it to say like, oh, it's not about the travel. It's, I mean, it's not about the stuff. It's about the travel, but that's, I've learned that by buying too much it's stuff. It's not about the travel. You heard this here. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I started off with a overloaded Tacoma that I spent too much money on. And so it's, I'm looking back on those mistakes that I've made. So it's not like that I have some well of wisdom. It's just like, I have a well of failures that resulted in me now knowing that like, it's not about the truck and it's not about the gear. That's because I had the trucks and I had the gear. Um, So maybe if someone listening can hear that, like maybe cut out some of the mistakes that I've made along the way to get to whatever your goal is a little more quickly. I think that might be helpful. A one more question, because you ask this question, every single guest, (laughs) what's your favorite book? Can you read? Turning the tables. <laughs> it's gonna be a hard one, I'm assuming. Yeah. Or maybe it's gonna be an easy one. I I oh. do I do love to read nonfiction. I don't read much fiction. It timely to this podcast, one of the few fiction books I read was Dune. And that's oh, now that's oh, the movie. And that's now yeah, out that's about that. and I have not seen it yet and I'm very excited to go see it. But that we was should go. We could do it. Let's go. Do a double date. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> go. Could. Let's go. A triple date. I was yeah. like, why can't I go? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know. They let we Canadians should. in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Canadians. You're just too nice. November 9th. <laughs> yeah. So that, so the movie's out. So that was uh, on the fiction book. That was, that was one that I really enjoyed. Um, I'm definitely not going to say desert solitaire or, <laughs> or monkey wrench gang, um, because I have actually not read either of those, um, of the nonfiction books that I like, there's one that I think has been one of the more impactful for me and it's called stillness is the key. It's written by Ryan holiday. Um, I, I've listened to it many times. I've read it in print many times. And um, it helps to remind me when I'm traveling to be present, to be as much in the moment as I can, because otherwise it's in my nature to be in the middle of an adventure, a wonderful adventure, and to be thinking of what the next adventure will be or what the next day will hold 
or whatever. So that has been a really important lesson for me that I, again, I'm only starting to scratch the surface on understanding and learning about that, but finding those moments of stillness, which means being present in whatever you're doing. And if you think about just the word present, it is a gift. Present means a gift. And that moment is a gift for us to be fully aware of and fully present in. And that's what I'm learning to do. So I'm less of a stone skipping across the surface and I'm going a little deeper in the places that I go to and that I'm being more present with the people in my life. You know, my mom is struggling with, with an illness that like every moment that I have with her, it is so important. Me being a little more still in my life and not always grasping at whatever comes next. That's been an important one for me. Big lessons, big life life lessons. Well, and thank, and thank you both too. I mean, you guys have allowed for this podcast to be as successful as it has been. And I would not be here without an entire team of people without, again, Jonathan's writing skills and his taste and Stephanie's design and her taste. And we wouldn't be doing this today without Paula and her being the producer that she is of the, of the podcast. And we heart you, Paula. Yeah, Paula. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Brian McVickers was our first employee and he's been a friend the entire time. We've worked together for nearly two decades. Brian's so awesome. Yeah. So I I have been the lucky recipient of the success of an incredible group of people. So again, it's there's that survivorship bias. Like I've made it to this other end because of those amazing folks. So well thank you for coming making the time to come on your your (laughs) podcast. I am your co-host. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, man, um, you know, I think you've changed a lot of people's lives. You certainly changed Thank mine. You. And, you know, thanks for all the opportunity over the years. And Totally. Yeah, I think it's it's cool to have a chat so people can get to know, get to know Scotty, not Scott Birdie, expedition leader. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, we'll... Uh, and on that bombshell. Yeah, on that, tune in next time. Thank you all for listening. 